Chapter Six of Lorna Doone. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Michelle Harris. Lorna Doone by R. D. Blackmore. Chapter Six. Necessary Practice. About the rest of all that winter, I remember very little, being only a young boy then and missing my father most out of doors as when it came to the bird-catching or the tracking of hares in the snow, or the training of a sheep-dog. Oftentimes I looked at his gun, an ancient piece found in the sea, a little below Glenthorne, and of which he was mighty proud, although it was only a matchlock, and I thought of the times I had held the fuse, while he got his aim at a rabbit, and once even at a red deer rubbing among the hazels. But nothing came of my looking at it, so far as I remember, save foolish tears of my own, perhaps, till John Fry took it down one day from the hooks where father's hand had laid it, and it hurt me to see how John handled it, as if he had no memory. Bad job for he as her had not got this eat that nate as her coom across them dunes. Racken varmer Jan ud the way to kingdom come, stead o gooin herzel zo aisy and I might have been going to market now, stead of laying banked up over yonner. Maester Jan, thee can zee the grave, if thee look alang this here goon burial. By now, what be blubberin' at? Wish I had never told thee. John Fry, I am not blubbering. You make a great mistake, John. You are thinking of little Annie. I cough sometimes in the winter weather, and father gives me licorice. I mean, I mean he used to. Now let me have the gun, John. Thee have the goon, Jan. Thee isn't fit to putt unto thy shoulder. What a weight her be, for sure. Me not hold it, John. That shows how much you know about it. Get out of the way, John. You are opposite the mouth of it, and likely it is loaded. John Fry jumped in a livelier manner than when he was doing day work, and I rested the mouth on a cross rack piece, and felt a warm sort of surety that I could hit the door over opposite or at least the cob-wall alongside of it, and do no harm in the orchard. But John would not give me link or fuse, and on the whole I was glad of it, though carrying on as boys do, because I had heard my father say that the Spanish gun kicked like a horse, and because the load in it came from his hand, and I did not like to undo it. But I never found it kick very hard, and firmly set to the shoulder, unless it was badly loaded. In truth, the thickness of the metal was enough almost to astonish one, and what our people said about it may have been true enough, although most of them are such liars, at least, I mean, they make mistakes, as all mankind must do. Perchance it was no mistake at all to say that this ancient gun had belonged to a noble Spaniard, the captain of a fine large ship in the Invincible Armada, which we of England managed to conquer, with God and the weather helping us, a hundred years ago or more, I can't say, to a month or so. After a little while, when John had fired away at a rat the charge I held so sacred, it came to me as a natural thing to practice shooting with that great gun, instead of John Fry's blunderbuss, which looked like a bell with a stalk to it. Perhaps for a boy there is nothing better than a good windmill to shoot at, as I have seen them in flat countries, but we have no windmills upon the great moorland. Yet here and there a few barn-doors, where shelter is, and away up the hollows. And up those hollows you can shoot, with the help of the sides to lead your aim, 
and there is a fair chance of hitting the door, if you lay your cheek to the barrel and try not to be afraid of it. Gradually I won such skill that I sent nearly all the lead gutter from the north porch of our little church through our best barn door, a thing which has often repented me since, especially as churchwarden, and made me pardon many bad boys, but father was not buried on that side of the church. But all this time, while I was roving over the hills or about the farm, and even listening to John Fry, my mother, being so much older and feeling trouble longer, went about inside the house, or among the maids and fowls, not caring to talk to the best of them, except when she broke out sometimes about the good master they had lost, all and every one of us. But the fowls would take no notice of it, except to cluck for barley, and the maidens, though they had liked him well, were thinking of their sweethearts as the spring came on. Mother thought it wrong of them, selfish and ungrateful, and yet sometimes she was proud that none had such call as herself to grieve for him. Only Annie seemed to go softly in and out, and cry, with nobody along of her, chiefly in the corner where the bees are and the grindstone. But somehow she would never let anybody behold her, being set, as you may say, to think it over by herself, and season it with weeping. Many times I caught her, and many times she turned upon me, and then I could not look at her, but asked how long to dinner-time. Now in the depth of the winter month, such as we call December, father being dead and quiet in his grave a fortnight, it happened me to be out of powder for practice against his enemies. I had never fired a shot without thinking, this for father's murderer, and John Fry said that I made such faces it was a wonder the gun went off, but though I could hardly hold the gun, unless with my back against a bar, it did me good to hear it go off, and hope to have hidden his enemies. "'Oh, mother, mother!' I said that day, directly after dinner, while she was sitting looking at me, and almost ready to say, as now she did seven times in a week, "'How like your father you are growing! Jack, come here and kiss me!' "'Oh, mother, if you only knew how much I want a shilling!' "'Jack, you shall never want a shilling while I am alive to give thee one. But what is it for, dear heart?' "'To buy something over at Porlock, mother. Perhaps I will tell you afterwards. If I tell not, it will be for your good, and for the sake of the children.' "'Bless the boy, one would think he was threescore years of age at least.' Give me a little kiss, you, Jack, and you shall have the shilling. For I hated to kiss or be kissed in those days, and so all honest boys must do when God puts any strength in them. But now I wanted the powder so much that I went and kissed Mother very shyly, looking round the corner first for Betty not to see me. But Mother gave me half a dozen, and only one shilling for all of them, and I could not find it in my heart to ask her for another, although I would have taken it. In very quick time I ran away with the shilling in my pocket, and got Peggy out on the Porlock Road without my mother knowing it. For mother was frightened of that road now, as if all the trees were murderers, and would never let me go alone so much as a hundred yards on it. And, to tell the truth, I was touched with fear for many years about it, and even now, when I ride at dark there, a man by a peat-rick makes me shiver, until I go and collar him. But this time I was very bold, having John Fry's blunderbuss, and keeping a sharp lookout wherever any lurking place was. However, I saw only sheep and small red cattle, 
and the common deer of the forest, until I was nigh to Porlock Town, and then rode straight to Mr. Pook's, at the sign of the spit and gridiron. Mr. Pook was asleep, as it happened, not having much to do that day, and so I fastened Peggy by the handle of a warming-pan, at which she had no better manners than to snort and blow her breath, and in I walked with a manful style, bearing John Fry's blunderbuss. Now Timothy Pook was a peaceful man, glad to live without any enjoyment of mind at danger, and I was tall and large already, as most lads of a riper age. Mr. Pook, as soon as he opened his eyes, dropped suddenly under the counting-board, and drew a great frying-pan over his head, as if the dunes were come to rob him, as their custom was, mostly after the fair time. It made me feel rather hot and queer to be taken for a robber, and yet methinks I was proud of it. "'Gadzooks, Master Pook,' said I, having learned fine words at Tiverton, "'do you suppose that I know not then the way to carry firearms? "'And it were the old Spanish matchlock in the lieu of this good flint engine, "'which may be borne ten miles or more and never once go off, "'scarcely couldst thou seem more scared. "'I might point at thee muzzle on, just so as I do now, "'even for an hour or more, and like enough it would never shoot thee.' unless I pull the trigger hard, with a crock upon my finger. So, you see, just so, Master Pook, only a trifle harder. "'God's sake, John Ridd, God's sake, dear boy,' cried Pook, knowing me by this time. "'Don't ee, for good love now, don't ee show it to me, boy, as if I was to suck it. Put un down for good now, and thee shall have the very best of all is in the shop.' "'Ho!' I replied, with much contempt, and swinging round the gun, so that it fetched his hoop of candles down, all unkindled as they were. "'Ho! as if I had not attained to the handling of a gun yet! My hands are cold coming over the moors, else would I go bail to point the mouth at you for an hour, sir, and no cause for uneasiness.' But in spite of all assurances, he showed himself desirous only to see the last of my gun in me. I dare say— villainous saltpetre, as the great playwright calls it, was never so cheap before nor since. For my shilling Master Pook afforded me two great packages, over-large to go into my pockets, as well as a mighty chunk of lead, which I bound upon Peggy's withers, and as if all this had not been enough, he presented me with a roll of comfits for my sister Annie, whose gentle face and pretty manners won the love of everybody." There was still some daylight here and there as I rose the hill above Porlock, wondering whether my mother would be in a fright or would not know it. The two great packages of powder, slung behind my back, knocked so hard against one another that I feared they must either spill or blow up, and hurry me over Peggy's ears from the woolen cloth I rode upon. For father always liked a horse to have some wool upon his loins whenever he went far from home and had to stand about where one pleased, hot and wet and panting. And father always said that saddles were meant for men full-grown and heavy and losing their activity. And no boy or young man on our farm durst ever get into a saddle, because they all knew that the master would chuck them out pretty quickly. As for me, I had tried it once, from a kind of curiosity, and I could not walk for two or three days, the leather galled my knees so. But now, as Peggy bore me bravely, snorting every now and then into a cloud of air, for the night was growing frosty, 
Presently the moon arose over the shoulder of a hill, and the pony and I were half glad to see her, and half afraid of the shadows she threw, and the images all around us. I was ready at any moment to shoot at anybody, having great faith in my blunderbuss, but hoping not to prove it. And as I passed the narrow place where the dunes had killed my father, such a fear broke out upon me that I leaned upon the neck of Peggy, and shut my eyes, and was cold all over. However, there was not a soul to be seen until we came home to the old farmyard, and there was my mother crying sadly, and Betty Muxworthy scolding. "'Come along now,' I whispered to Annie the moment supper was over, "'and if you can hold your tongue, Annie, I will show you something.' She lifted herself on the bench so quickly, and flushed so rich with pleasure, that I was obliged to stare hard away and make Betty look beyond us. Betty thought I had something hid in the closet beyond the clock-case, and she was the more convinced of it by reason of my denial. Not that Betty Muxworthy, or any one else for that matter, ever found me in a falsehood, because I never told one, not even to my mother, or, which is still a stronger thing, not even to my sweetheart, when I grew up to have one, but that Betty, being wronged in the matter of marriage a generation or two agone, by a man who came hedging and ditching, had now no mercy, except to believe that men from cradle to grave are liars, and women fools to look at them. When Betty could find no crime of mine, she knocked me out of the way in a minute, as if I had been nobody, and then she began to coax Mistress Annie, as she always called her, and draw the soft hair down her hands, and whisper into the little ears. Meanwhile dear mother was falling asleep, having been troubled so much about me, and Watch, my father's pet dog, was nodding closer and closer up into her lap. "'Now, Annie, will you come?' I said, for I wanted her to hold the ladle for melting of the lead. "'Will you come at once, Annie, or must I go for Lizzie and let her see the whole of it?' "'Indeed, then, you won't do that,' said Annie. "'Lizzie to come before me, John?' and she can't stir a pot of brewis, and scarce knows a tongue from a ham, John, and says it makes no difference because both are good to eat. Oh, Betty, what do you think of that to come of all her book-learning? Thank God he can't say that of me, Betty answered shortly, for she never cared about argument, except on her own side. Thank he, I says, every marnin a most, never to lead me astray so. Men is desavin, and so is gallinies, but the most desavin of all is books, with their heads and tails, and the speckets in em, like a pig as have taken the mazels. Some folk pretend to laugh and cry over them. God forgive them for liars. It was part of Betty's obstinacy that she never would believe in reading, or the possibility of it, but stoutly maintained to the very last that people first learn things by heart, and then pretended to make them out from patterns done upon paper, for the sake of astonishing honest folk just as do the conjurers. And even to see the parson and clerk was not enough to convince her. All she said was, It made no odds, they were all the same as the rest of us. And now that she had been on the farm nigh upon forty years, and had nursed my father, and made his clothes, and all that he had to eat, and then put him in his coffin, she was come to such authority that it was not worth the wages of the best man on the place to say a word in answer to Betty, 
even if he would face the risk to have ten for one or twenty. Annie was her love and joy. For Annie she would do anything, even so far as to try to smile, when the little maid laughed and danced to her. And in truth I know not how it was, but every one was taken with Annie at the very first time of seeing her. She had such pretty ways and manners, and such a look of kindness, and a sweet soft light in her long blue eyes full of trustful gladness. Everybody who looked at her seemed to grow the better for it, because she knew no evil. And then the turn she had for cooking, you never would have expected it, and how it was her richest mirth to see that she had pleased you. I have been out on the world a vast deal, as you will own hereafter, and yet have I never seen Annie's equal for making a weary man comfortable. End of chapter 6 Recording by Michelle Harris